Welcome to IABTI Blast, the podcast for bomb technicians and investigators. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a series of podcasts on radiation. I'm delighted to welcome back uh, Dr. Andy Carum. Andy, welcome. Uh, hello. Good to be back. Today, we're going to talk about radiation from x-rays and medical sources, which is something that's been raised by some of our listeners. They've heard all of the official stuff, and now they want the uh, the unofficial stuff on medical-linked radiation. So if we start off, Andy, I got a, a medical idea on my read the other day. How is radioactivity used in medicine? Now, there's a couple ways. Probably the one that most people are familiar with is cancer therapy, where they'll maybe implant small radioactive sources into a tumor, or they'll use an external source to expose a person or to expose a tumor to radiation. You know, so for example, if you hear about people who've had gamma knife treatment that uses a bunch of intersecting radioactive beams from, or I should say a bunch of intersecting radiation beams from radioactive sources, and they focus all of those on the tumor, so it will destroy a tumor. They use those especially for brain cancers. So that's one way. Hopefully you would not pick up something like that on the streets because that would mean that there were some problems like with high activity radioactive sources going around. So more likely the medical ID that you were getting was from a nuclear medicine patient. That's somebody who's been injected with radioactive material to try to diagnose disease. So for example, if my endocrinologist thinks that I might have thyroid cancer, they would inject me with some radioactive iodine or they would actually more likely they would give it to me in a capsule form to swallow. And then the iodine, once it gets into the bloodstream, it all goes to the thyroid and they can then image the thyroid. They can use gamma cameras to take a look to see if there's any nodules in the thyroid that might be cancer. Or last year I had a, I had a lung scan and so they had me inhale a radioactive gas and they imaged my chest and it showed whether or not there were any obstructions in the chest, any parts of the lungs that weren't, that weren't inflating properly. So those are the sorts of things that they use nuclear medicine isotopes for. And those are the ones that are most likely to show up on your RID. So how long, what's a, if a patient has got isotopes within his body for medical reasons, how long is that likely to stay there? It really depends on the nuclide. You know, iodine, for example, I-131 has a half-life of about eight days. And so it's decaying away over that amount of time, but then it's also leaving the body in your urine or in your feces. So it's got a biological half-life as well as a radiological half-life. So when you put those together, iodine-131, well, it, it's normally out of your body within maybe a couple of weeks. Technetium-99, on the other hand, only has a six-hour half-life. So that'll only be with you for a couple of days. And then there's even shorter lived ones. If somebody has a PET scan, most of those have half-lives on the order of maybe an hour or two. So within a day, all of that's gonna be completely gone. You know, so, so the longest, something might be with you for maybe two to four weeks. The shortest would be maybe just for the afternoon. And I, I guess for what it's worth too, the last time I had a nuclear medicine scan, just being the geek that I am, I was surveying myself every day and it was just kind of fun watching the numbers go down. Well, fun for me anyhow. But it, it took about a week, a week and a half until all the radioactivity had cleared out. And does a patient typically carry a card that will explain that to you? In some cities, they will. It's not required any place, but especially in cities that have a high awareness for, for terrorism, ones that have an extensive network of radiation detectors, it's more common for doctors in those places to give cards or letters to their patients to carry around with them. And for that matter, if you had found who it was who had the medical radionuclides inside them, chances are they would have been able to present you with a card of some sort. The problem is that that in and of itself isn't enough to say, well, okay, you're, you're one of the good guys. 
because of course anybody with a word processor and a printer can print up a phony one. But at least it's a it's a good start. So do medical isotopes ever show up as anything else on the RID? Sometimes they do. We had an instance at the Federal Reserve Bank here in New York where a nuclear medicine patient was going by a radiation detector and it showed up as special nuclear material or SNM. That's the sort of thing that they might make a nuclear weapon out of, which it alarmed people a little bit. But we were able to go back and look at the spectrum and show that, well, no, this isn't special nuclear material. It's just, I think it was a, it was a PET patient. So positron emission tomography is what the PET and PET scan stands for. But yeah, sometimes there are misidentifications like that. Okay. And when they inject radioactivity into patients, does it cause them any danger? No, at least not unless they've got a severe phobia of needles. But as far as the radioactivity itself, you know, we're injecting this into patients to try to diagnose their disease, to try to figure out what's wrong with them. And, you know, they, they wouldn't do that if the radioactivity itself posed a risk. Most of the time, it poses so little risk that doctors really don't worry about it too much. At the same time, when I was flying surveys over New York in our helicopter, if you had a nuclear medicine scan, I could probably pick you up when we were about 1,500 feet up. And if we hovered over you or flew really slowly, I could identify the radionuclide. So just because it's not dangerous doesn't mean that it's so little that you can't detect it. So if it's if it's not really dangerous to the patient, does it pose any risk to somebody else? No. I guess that falls into the it stands to reason category. But if somebody's injecting radioactivity into me and it doesn't pose a risk to me, you know, I've got the radioactivity basically coursing through my body. Whereas all that you're exposed to is the radiation that manages to escape from my body and enter yours. And it's just, you know, the dose that you would get is a tiny fraction of what I would get. Okay. So just taking this to the, the nth degree, if there was, say, a, a, a car accident where somebody with a large dose of radioactive isotopes in them was involved and there was uh, bodily contamination issues, are you going to be more at risk from the contaminated scene? You know, that's one that I've never thought of before. So uh, that, that would be a case where you could be exposed to more. And I guess to take the worst case, say somebody who had a therapeutic dose of iodine-131, you know, not just to diagnose thyroid cancer, but to try to destroy the thyroid entirely. So that's the most radioactivity that somebody would have in their body. And it would also be the most that would be going through their blood. I, I suppose in a case like that, if you came in contact with their blood or body fluids, then it probably would absorb through your skin because iodine is very mobile and it would go to your thyroid. But at the same time, most of the iodine that was administered to that patient would already be on their thyroid. There wouldn't be that much left to be circulating through the blood. So whatever you got, it might be enough to, I would say, do a thyroid scan on you, but it wouldn't be enough to hurt you. Okay. I, I guess one other thing comes to mind with that too. When I was radiation safety officer for a, for a hospital, we had a thyroid ablation patient, a mother, who went home after a couple of days in the hospital, and her 12-year-old daughter climbed into bed with her that night, you know, just because the daughter had missed her mother so much. And iodine also transfers through perspiration. So if I have iodine administered to me and I touch something, just from touching it, some radioactivity will come off on that. And of course, it's absorbed very easily through the skin. So we were worried about the daughter who, you know, 12 years old, the thyroid cell is fairly sensitive. So we ended up doing a full workup on the daughter. And we found out that she had a little bit of iodine in her, but it was so little that it just didn't pose a risk even to even to the, the child. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying that, yeah, you can be exposed, but it's not going to be enough to hurt you. 
Okay. So moving on, Andy, tell me about what uh, effect an X-ray machine could potentially have on us, such as airport screening devices or portable X-ray equipment that we all use in our day-to-day work. I've actually done measurements on some of those. At the airport once, for example, they made me pass my radiation detector through the X-ray with it turned on just to prove that it was a radiation detector, I guess, and not a radiation detector-shaped bomb. And when it came through on the other end, they all clustered around to see how much radiation exposure there was in the machine. Actually, it made me wonder if they were like moonlighting doing X-rays or something. It, it turns out, by the way, that apparently every now and again, they'll see a car seat go through with a kid still in it because the parents just kind of got overwhelmed when they were loading up the conveyor. But anyhow, the, the dose that it picked up going through was, was really trivial. And when I say that, I mean, it was less than what I get in a single day just from from natural radiation or radioactivity. So yeah, it was something measurable, but it just wasn't all that much. And then the radiation dose rate on the outside of the machine is even lower because the machines are shielded. And some other measurements that I made were of a transmission x-ray machine at Rikers Island, one of the jails in New York, because we had prisoners who were concerned, you know, if they were let out on work release or something like that, when they came back, they were x-rayed just to make sure they weren't bringing any contraband in with them. And they were concerned that it might be exposing them to excessive radiation. So with that, I visited all of their machines. I read the literature on them and I stood in the beam myself and made measurements while it was scanning me the same way it would have scanned the prisoners. And again, there, the radiation exposure was so low, it was equivalent to maybe one or at most two hours of natural background radiation. You know, so again, just based on measurements I've made inside and the machines, the security x-ray machines don't pose any threat at all. Oh, and then, then one other thing too, is that with the x-rays that they use, you know, like what they have at some of the IABTI meetings that they use to x-ray packages to see what's inside, I've also made measurements of those and those don't provide a significant amount of radiation exposure either. You know, you should not stand in the beam just because it's good radiation safety practice. But if you happen to be nearby when a shot's made, it's not going to, oh, like cause you to go bald or have strange looking children or anything like that. So we need, we needn't worry about our portable x-rays. No, like I said, just for good practice, you should not be standing in the beam. But if you do get caught, it's it's not that big a deal. If you're standing to the sides or behind it, the dose is nothing. Okay. And what about medical x-rays and CT scans or fluoroscopy? Now, the, the medical x-rays give very low dose also. And I can say that because we used to do measurements in the beam of our x-ray machines at the hospital that I worked at. And, you know, so like a chest x-ray will give you maybe 10 to 15 millirem. And that's well, about what I got when I flew to Japan last year. You know, so it's it's a dose, it's measurable, it's just not a significant dose. T- to put that in perspective, it would take about 10,000 times that much radiation exposure to give you radiation sickness. So you would have to have about 10,000 chest x-rays to get to the point of having radiation sickness. The CT scans expose you to more. So those will expose you to about maybe one to two rem, so 1,000 to 2,000 millirem during a whole body CT scan that's not enough to hurt you. And even over a lifetime, you know, if you have one of those, say, every five years, then you, well, let's see, now I've got to do some mental math. So say every five years, over, over, say, 80 years, that would be 16. Yeah, 16. So about 16 to 32 REM over a lifetime. And that's not enough to increase your cancer risk appreciably either. So having said that, 
you know, just as I mentioned before that you shouldn't stand in the beam of an x-ray machine just as, as a good practice, it's also not a good practice to self-refer yourself, you know, just like to give somebody a whole body CT scan for a birthday present or anything like that. It's not going to hurt you, but it's kind of like saying, well, one cigarette won't hurt anybody and then giving one to your five-year-old. You know, it's just, it's not a good practice. I guess the other thing is the fluoroscopy and fluoroscopy gets to the point where you can hurt people with radiation. You know, if you do a Google image search for, for radiation injury, one of the pictures that comes up a lot is a guy who's a, a little bit chubby who has a hole in his back. And, you know, it's about, you know, maybe the size of your hand looks like it's maybe a half inch deep or so. And that's from excessive use of fluoroscopy. And it wasn't without reason. They were trying to put, I believe, a pacemaker in. And it's kind of good to make sure that goes into the heart and not into the liver. But at the same time, it, that was avoidable. And so fluoroscopy, the doses can get high to the point of causing harm. Luckily, there's a lot of good practices that doctors are aware of for reducing the dose from fluoroscopy. And so it's not often that doctors actually burn their patients with the fluoroscope. Most of the time when that does happen, it's during an interventional cardiology procedure where they're putting stents in or running a catheter or a pacemaker or something like that. And it's a, a lot of times it comes down to the choice between a radiation burn or the patient dying. And, you know, for, for me, I'll go with the burn. So bearing in mind what you've just said about medical x-ray equipment, will medical x-ray equipment show up on uh, standard radiation detection instruments? A lot of times it will. And, you know, obviously if you're in the medical clinic, then you can, you can detect the things. But there was once where we got a radionuclide ID oh, somewhere on the Upper East Side, and it was showing up as americium-241, which is an isotope that a lot of people get concerned about. And in fact, we didn't know right away that it was a medical source. We just saw the americium ID, and we were trying to figure out who was playing with americium in the area. It turns out that what it was was a CT machine that was in a hospital nearby, it was on the second floor instead of in the basement and the room was unshielded. So when they were CTing the patient, some of those x-rays were escaping out and being picked up by our equipment and showing up as americium-241. We actually were able to replicate that using other x-ray devices. And it just turns out that some x-ray machines have a, have a peak energy that's very close to americium-241. So that, that was probably the biggest one. And then every now and again, we would get just not a nuclide ID, but we'd get radiation alarms and then find out we were close to maybe a podiatry clinic or a veterinary clinic or something like that, where they just have the x-ray machines in on the ground level with, with the other rooms and everything. As I mentioned before, it was something that we could pick up. That doesn't mean that it was dangerous for anybody. It's just really, really easy to pick up radiation. You mentioned there are veterinary clinics. And uh, we had a little discussion before we went online about uh, animals and uh, radioactive isotopes. What can you tell us about animals? Well, there are actually some vets who will give radioactive iodine to cats for hyperthyroidism. I just always thought they were squirrely, but it turns out that sometimes cats can be hyperthyroid. And so they'll, or the, if they have thyroid cancer, or sometimes for other types of cancer, the vets will give radioactive iodine to the pets. So yeah, you, you can pick that up and then if the pets are living near where you're patrolling, you can also pick up their litter because whatever goes in is going to come out again. Just the same as a lot of times our sanitation people will pick up radioactive diapers from incontinent adult patients that have had medical procedures. I gave a 
whole new meaning to the term crapped up that we used in the Navy for something that was contaminated. First time I had to respond to a landfill alarm for an adult diaper. But anyhow, getting back to the pets, yeah, a lot of times veterinarians will give radioactive iodine to some pets. We also had cases when I worked at Ohio State where we had a large equine center and since horses are susceptible to leg fractures, they would use a lot of technetium 99 to do bone scans on the horses. And then we had to deal with, uh, politely speaking, the horse excreta as far as letting that decay to stability. So th those were the biggest ones were the technetium and the iodine. Excellent. I think we've probably covered most of the territory we wanted to cover. Yeah, I, I guess two other thoughts. You know, one is that you can also pick up medical radionuclides from vehicles that are transporting them. You know, so for example, every hospital and every nuclear medicine clinic, or I should say every hospital that has nuclear medicine and every standalone nuke med clinic is going to be having deliveries probably on a daily basis, which means that there's the, there are the vehicles that deliver those radioisotopes from the nuclear pharmacies that are scattered near the city. You know, so you might pick up some of those shipments that are going to the, the clinics on your instruments, even if you don't see a, an elderly looking person who's a good candidate for being a NUCMED patient, it could still be a legitimate NUCMED ID. So the other thing is that there have been suggestions that nuclear medicine isotopes might be used to help to mask nuclear weapons. And so that's something else to be aware of is if you pick up nuclear medicine isotopes, just be, be aware of the fact that chances are overwhelming that it's probably a nuclear medicine patient, but you still have to keep open the possibility that it might be something else. Yeah, it's certainly a case at, at our, our airports in the UK where there are radiation detection uh, setups at the entrance to all the customs halls. So anybody traveling through the airport will be picked up either leaving the country or entering the country. Obviously, if they have if they have documentation to prove that they are a patient, that's one thing. But if they don't, then potentially it causes us a major issue. Well, and that's one reason, too, that it's just good to, you know, as I would tell our cops when I gave them training, that they still have to use their cop sense. You know, don't just look at the instrument and say, oh, nuke med, old person, and let them go their way. You know, instead, talk to them, ask them some questions. You know, give your instruments a chance to settle in, because a lot of times instruments will change their readings over time as they get more information or as they get more radiation. And so, you know, take the opportunity to talk to them to make sure that everything seems to line up. You know, they say that they're a nuclear medicine patient, but your instrument says that maybe it's barium-133 instead of I-131. And that's something that is, is a little bit odd, you know, or, you know, or maybe your instrument is given a nuke med reading, but they don't seem to have any pr problems or, you know, they look like a perfectly healthy person. You call up, maybe, you know, if they give you a letter, call the number on the letter, do a quick Google search to make sure that doctor is really a doctor, you know, that, that sort of thing. You know, the phrase you hear a lot of times is the totality of evidence. So, yeah, your radiation instrument is one tool that you have, but it's only one out of many sources of information. Make sure that they all match up and that you feel comfortable with that person before you let them go. And if somebody was transporting med medication, whether it's veterinary medication or human medication that is radioactive, how would you expect that medication to be carried? In the U.S., it's normally carried locked up in some sort of a container. You know, it might be a plastic box. It might be an, an ammo case that has some foam inserts. But then those are typically locked up inside the trunk or inside the bed of a pickup if they're carried that way. 
And in fact, a lot of the manufacturers too, or a lot of the nuclear pharmacies will have these racks that they set in the, in the trunk and the ammo boxes are put into the racks or the boxes. And then that whole thing is locked and then locked within the trunk. Yeah, if they just have a bunch of stuff that's thrown in the back, then that would really make me suspicious. And is it something you could carry if you were, say, an airline passenger? Can you carry medication with you like that? Uh, this is not something like asthma medicine or something like that. You know, so the patients would not be carrying this. It would be administered at a hospital or at a clinic, and then they would just be going out to, I guess, spread radioactivity everywhere. Well, actually, that just really doesn't sound all that good. But but no. We, we the, get what you mean. Yeah, but but like I said, this is not something that a patient would be carrying around with them to self-administer. Okay, excellent. Well, Andy, on that note, I'm delighted to have you speak to us again. And uh, thank you very much for your time. No, not a problem. And it's always nice listening to your accent. <laughs> oh, plus you're a nice guy, too. I, I don't have an accent. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that concludes our podcast for today. As always, if any of our listeners have a subject they want us to research and investigate and create a podcast on, then please let us know. Contact the IBO and we will do our damnedest to track down an expert in that field and uh, speak to him. Thank you very much for listening. The views, information or opinions expressed during the IABTI Blast podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of IABTI. The IABTI is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of the information contained in the podcast series.